All right, if you want to make your way back to your seats. If you, if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 2. We're going we're gonna to start in verse 17 today and work our way uh, down through verse 8 of chapter 3. And so... As you get yourself situated there, let's, uh, let's pray together and then we'll dive in. God, thank you for this morning, Lord, for the chance to come and to worship together, um, to gather together as a body of believers, God, to examine your word. God, I pray that your spirit would be here this morning, um, Lord, that our worship of you uh, in song in word, in fellowship, God, that it would be pleasing and glorifying to you. Uh, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts to your word, God, that your spirit would take it and uh, press it into our hearts and into our lives, God, that this would be more than just a mental exercise this morning, God, but instead that your spirit would take your word and use it to transform us into the image of your son, use it to transform us, into models of what it looks like to live in relationship with Christ, God, and that that would be to your glory and that it would resound uh, to the ends of the earth. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are getting closer uh, to the end of this uh, section of Romans from 118 to Romans 3, verse 20, where Paul is uh, working on establishing the reality of universal guilt or uh, the fact that all of humanity is sinful. And we've been operating over the last uh, few weeks under this uh, particular heading, uh, this statement that due to the presence of sin, humanity does not deserve and cannot earn God's righteous eternal favor. And as we've been working through that section, it's almost as if we've been kind of squeezing ourselves through a funnel. That's what Paul has been doing. He started uh, in Romans 1.18 down to verse 32, and he was looking at all of humanity and saying that all of humanity is sinful. And this is what sinfulness looks like. And then starting at the beginning of chapter uh, 2 down to verse 16, uh, 2.1 through 2.16, it's like he kind of uh, hemmed that in a little bit, and he's speaking directly to people that would maybe think of themselves as moral, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, an individual who heard that list of sins, who heard what sin looks like and how it operates in a a person's life and would have thought to themselves, yeah, but I'm really moral. I do good things. And now, starting in 2.17 and and through the first part of chapter 8, Paul's going to squeeze that down a little bit further, and he's going to address Jewish people in specific. The churches that he was writing to in Rome were made up of a mixture of Jewish and Gentile individuals, and he's going to address those Jewish readers straight out. Uh, And what he has to say isn't particularly uh, comfortable for them. And then next week, starting in Romans 3, 9, down to 3, verse 20, Paul's going to widen that funnel back out and address all of humanity one more time. So that's, that's kind of how he's working here. And this morning, Paul's going to look his Jewish audience right in the eye, and he's going to tell them that despite any protest, neither your privileged position nor your pious practice could ever save you. 
despite any protest you might make. And he's going to address those protests straight out as well. And so we're going to we're going to work through this section in three uh, different chunks. And so we'll read that chunk and then uh, talk about it and, and kind of work our way through rather than reading all of this at once. Uh, Romans 2.17 down to 3.8 is a little bit confusing. Uh, some of the paragraphs can be a little bit challenging to grasp exactly what Paul is saying. So we're going to break it into pieces to hopefully uh, highlight one paragraph at a time and, and help that make sense. So I'm going to start in Romans 2.17 and read down to verse 24. This is what it says. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Remember where we ended last week. And we talked about the fact that this is all one letter. Paul's not working in section headings and chapters and verses like we are. Where we left off, Paul said that in this moment of judgment that is certainly coming, that on that day, God is going to judge what people have kept secret. And he's going to do it according to the gospel through Jesus Christ. And so in the next sentence, he opens up by saying, now, if you call yourself a Jew. And I can only think that a person reading this who was Jewish has, you know, read what we have as chapter one in the first half of chapter two, and is thinking to themselves, yeah, but I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm an Israelite. I am Jewish. And God, or Paul looks to them and he addresses them specifically, and they're probably thinking to themselves, he's about to say something wonderfully affirming to me. And Paul does the exact opposite. He's going to address their, address their privileged position here. In fact, he does it with eight different phrases. Walk through them with me. If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, that's item number one, and you boast in God, particularly in their relationship with God, and you know his will, specifically that through the Israelite people, Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. You know God's will. That's what he has revealed to you. That's a privilege. You approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. You, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, for those who are spiritually blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, that you have something that there's a large chunk of people that don't know, but you have access to it and you can instruct them, that you're a teacher of the immature, that there are those who spiritually don't have the same knowledge base that you do or they aren't as far along in their Jewish faith and you get to be the teacher of that. Paul gives them eight privileges. Those are all wonderful things and he doesn't deny any of them. He doesn't negate the reality of any of those. What an honor to have been chosen by God 
in this kind of way. But what's happened is that they have taken that privilege and rather than allowing it to cultivate a sense of responsibility and obligation within them, they've allowed it to create a sense of uh, presumption inside of them. There's a a famous line from Spider-Man that with great power comes great responsibility. Paul's trying to highlight that with their great privilege, there should have been great responsibility. But instead, they have gone the other way. Their privileged position is created within them a sense of presumption. Instead of cultivating within the Jewish people a sense of obligation and eagerness and unashamedness in who the Lord is, we talked about that early on in Romans chapter 1, it's created this sort of like get-off-my-lawn kind of mentality. There was a guy that lived up the street from us while we were growing up. Uh, His name was Joe. I don't know Joe's last name. I just knew him as Joe. He was retired. He uh, lived outside, more or less. You woke up and went to school, he was already sitting in his little like glider chair out in front. You got home from school, he was still there. Uh, there were a few kids on our street, and we would do this thing where we would go up to the very top of the street. And I realize now that I have my own lawn that I would not love it if kids did this but I'd probably permit it because of how fun it is. But our street had a significant decline. And so we would start at the top of the street and basically just ride the hills through people's yard because it was so fun, except for that when you got to Joe's yard, you took a hard swing out into the street and then dipped back in after his driveway because he would yell at you to get off of his lawn. Like, that's kind of a joke about people who get a little uh, kind of curmudgeon late in life, let's say. But it was a real thing growing up on Kingsley. Paul says, you were supposed to have this incredible responsibility and privilege that you were going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, that you had within you the knowledge of what relationship with God looked like. And you were supposed to be a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, instructors of the ignorant, teachers of the immature. And instead, what you've done, he says in verse 24, is you've actually caused all of the nations, the Gentiles, to blaspheme the name of God or to scoff at it. You don't teach yourself. Yeah, you might preach not to steal. You might tell people not to commit adultery, not to get involved with idols, but you do those exact things. You might boast in the fact that you have the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. And everyone can see that that's the case. Everyone except for you. Because like we've talked about over the last couple weeks, sin makes us horribly unself-aware. He quotes in verse 24 from Isaiah chapter 52 that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the Jewish people. Their privileged position should have created a sense of responsibility. Instead, it created presumption. And that position, that presumption is not going to save them in the moment of judgment. The Israelites were to be a source of blessing, but instead... They've become the source of the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles. Your privileged position is not going to save you 
Paul says. Despite any protests, neither privileged position nor pious practice can save anyone. In verse 25, Paul's going to move on to this sort of uh, key religious practice that the Jewish people had. So from 25 down to 29, this is what Paul says. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, will judge you, who are a lawbreaker, in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. And this is kind of the key here, verses 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the letter, or by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. That's confusing. The words circumcision and uncircumcision are used like 10 times over the course of three or four verses. And it's hard to follow exactly what he's saying. It'll help if we all have a general background understanding of what circumcision was for the Jewish people. God makes a covenant with Abram, with Abraham. It starts to unfold in Genesis chapter 12 that God is going to make him into a great nation, that he's going to bless him and make his his name great, that he's going to give them land, and that through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it was through that covenant that the Israelites were to become what Exodus calls a kingdom of priests, And this covenant was going to last forever. And the sign of that covenant would be circumcision. Circumcision was to be a sort of admission into the covenant, a beginning point into which the Jewish people entered into a faithful relationship with the Lord. And inherent within that covenant was the fact that they would be obedient to God. Abraham stepped into this relationship with God through his faith, but the Jewish people, the Israelites, from that point forward... Paul says, began to rely on the outward act of circumcision as the thing that was going to save them. I don't love math. I particularly don't love math when it involves letters. Mm Mm-hmm. Someone gave me an amen over there. I really don't like math when it involves words, but we're going to do some word math right now because I think this helps uh, clarify exactly what it is that Paul's trying to say. From... Romans 2, 25 down to 29, this is what Paul is trying to draw out. That outward circumcision minus inward obedience equals inward uncircumcision. That you might be outwardly circumcised, but if you're not obedient on the inside, it's as if on the inside you're uncircumcised. But then he goes on to say that the inverse of that is true as well. That you might be outwardly uncircumcised, but if you have inward obedience, then it's as if you are circumcised on the inside. And then he follows that up by saying, being a Jew, a person of the promise of the covenant of God, was never about something outward. It's always been about something inward. Abraham stepped into it by faith, not by circumcision. And the same is true now. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly only. 
And true circumcision isn't something that's visible in your flesh. But a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart. It's an inward issue. Paul's already established that the Jewish people haven't exactly been following the very law that they boast in, that they dishonor the name of God despite their special relationship with him. And the logical response would have been, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, but we're circumcised. To which Paul says, indeed only are you circumcised. Circumcision for you, Paul says, is nothing more than this pious outward show of religion, and you're missing the entire point. Circumcision was supposed to supplement their obedience to the law, not substitute for it. Their pious practice of circumcision was profitless, and it's profitless because it comes from a bankrupt heart. And that bankrupt heart is ultimately what's going to issue forth in a guilty verdict before the Lord on the day of judgment. Due to the presence of sin, humanity, all of humanity, Jew or Gentile, does not deserve, and what Paul's bringing out here is that you cannot earn God's righteous eternal favor. That includes the Jewish people. They, too, are guilty before the Lord because of the presence of sin. And what's ultimately going to display the presence of sin in their lives is their heart, not the act of being or not being circumcised. Despite any protests, neither privileged position nor pious practice can save any person. Before we move into chapter 3, it's worth taking a little bit of a detour here. And so if, you, if you've got a Bible that you can kind of mark Romans 3 here, and you can flip quickly back to Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and hold yourself there for just a second. Paul has been uh, highlighting a specific issue all throughout the first two chapters of Romans. Uh, you maybe have, have noticed it, maybe you haven't. I've tried to bring it out on Sunday mornings. But look at all the times here where Paul mentions the heart in Romans chapters 1 and 2. It's going to be up on the screen. In Romans 1.21, he says that their hearts were darkened. In Romans 1.24, says that they were given over in the desires of their heart. In Romans 1.26, Paul says that humanity was delivered over to disgraceful passions. In Romans 2.5, he says that their hearts are hardened and unrepentant. And because of that, they're storing up or treasuring wrath for themselves. In Romans 2.16, Paul says that God will judge what is secret that we've kept in our Hearts And in Romans 2.29, what we just read, he says the true relationship, true circumcision is of the heart. All of humanity, including the Jews, has a sin problem. And it's rooted somewhere. It's rooted in the heart. Which means that guilt or innocence when standing before the Lord isn't going to be a matter of heritage or position or practice, it's going to be a matter of the heart. The true sign of being in relationship with God isn't an outward act, it's an inward one. It's not something visible in the flesh, it's a transformation that's happened within a person. And that transformation then becomes what drives everything that happens outwardly. I've said this uh, in previous sermons, but it's worth repeating right now. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. 
And what Paul is going at length here to illustrate is that for Jewish people and Gentile people, our hearts are sinful and need something in order to bring them back from a state of brokenness into a state of righteousness. Scripture makes this point abundantly clear from beginning to end, but maybe nowhere is it clearer than in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're in, Rome, or if you're in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is about to launch into an explanation of exactly how sin actually works. In 520, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And then he starts to work through some sins, if you will. He says, You've heard it said, or you know that you should not murder. But I tell you, Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Who's ever angry in the heart. If you flip over, he goes on. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He talks about taking oaths. He says, don't take an oath. Don't lie. Don't, ultimately what you're going to do is you're going to break that and you're going to be, you know, convicted as a liar. He says, just don't ever take it. Don't ever make a promise there in your heart. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he goes on over in, starting in verse 43, and he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That starts in the heart. But he also has a lot to say about their religious actions. So he moves on to that. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's the start of chapter 6. He says, when you give, don't sound the trumpet so that everyone knows that you've just given. When you pray, starting in verse 5, don't stand up and pray just to be seen out in public. Instead, go into a place where it's private and pray. He talks about fasting, starting in verse 16. He says, when you fast, don't contort your face so that it's obvious to people. Instead, just quietly and humbly go about your fasting. Your behavior is a heart issue. Jesus says. Your religious practice should be a heart issue, Jesus says. He would go even further. You don't have to flip there, but in Matthew 23, 27 and 28, he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Relationship with the Lord has never just been about rote religious practice. It's always been about the heart. And Paul's trying to say the exact same thing here at the end of Romans 2. You tell people not to steal, but do you steal in your heart? You tell people not to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery in your heart? You tell people not to bow down to idols, but do you do that in your heart? You tell people to obey the law, but do you dishonor God when you break it in your heart? Despite any protests or practice, or despite any protests, neither religious 
nor neither privileged position or pious practice can save any person. And Paul's going to hit home the protest part here. That's what happens in starting in chapter 3. Paul's going to engage in an outward, hypothetical conversation. Paul's been answering objections kind of as he goes along. Now he's just going to state the question and give the answer. And so it's kind of helpful here uh, if when you read this, you try to frame the conversation for yourself. So this is what it is. Paul's answering these two questions. What advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And his answer is, it's considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. So then, another question. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul answers, absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Another question. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? It's almost as if Paul apologizes here. I'm using a human argument. The question is, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? And Paul says, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will he judge the world? Then two more questions. But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. And Paul, at the very end, answers that by saying, their condemnation is deserved. He's having a conversation back and forth. Paul's Jewish himself. He's preached the gospel to Jewish people uh, for a length of time now. He can call out these questions and put them in Romans, probably because he's been asked them, but maybe even more so than that, because at one time, after seeing Christ on the road to Damascus and having the vision there of Jesus and placing his faith in Christ, Paul probably had to wrestle with these questions himself. He needed answers for these for himself. And so he can bring these out right to the forefront as he's talking to these Jewish people. In fact, Paul's going to spend all of Romans 9, 10, and 11 answering these questions. Is God still faithful to the Jewish people? And so we're going to save an extended conversation for when we get to those chapters. But suffice it to say that Paul's answer is summed up in two statements that he makes. Two times in answering these questions, he responds, absolutely not. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. He is not unrighteous to do that. If some are unfaithful, will that nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. That phrase should actually be translated something along the lines of not in a thousand years. There's like an indignation there for Paul that someone would even ask that question. Salvation and right relationship with God has always been about faith. It was that way for Abraham when God made his covenant. It's been that way for the Jewish people since the day of that covenant and will always be that way for all of humanity now in New Testament times. And Paul is saying that human unfaithfulness will never undermine God's perfect faithfulness. That cannot ever happen. Just because you are sinful and broken does not mean that God is unfaithful. God will be faithful and fair in his judging, specifically here of Jewish people, but Paul's been laying out that it's going to be fair for all people. And then when he gets to the end there, 
And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. It's like Paul kind of throws his hands up in the air, rolls his eyes at the Jewish people and says, your condemnation is deserved. If you could ever allow yourself to think that by sinning more, you'll just highlight God's righteousness, your condemnation is deserved. If you could ever even allow yourself to think that by being unfaithful to God, it's going to highlight God's faithfulness, your condemnation is deserved. You can lodge whatever protest you want. You can put up whatever excuse you want, but it won't hold water in the moment that you stand there before the Lord. Despite any protests, neither privileged position nor pious practice can save any person. So you get down to the end of Romans 3, uh, 8, and it's a fair question to say, what in the world does this have to do with me today? We don't, practice circumcision as entry into a covenant with God. We don't uh, hold up, you know, the law in the same way that the Jewish people did. So what are we supposed to do with something like this? I want to I give you two things, but I want to say this first. Notice that in the statement for today, oh, will you go back one slide? Notice that in the statement today, I didn't say despite any protest, neither privileged position nor pious practice can save the Jews. It can't save anyone, which includes people who live in the Bible Belt today. We cannot allow our position to substitute for saving faith. Consider the privilege of our position in the Western church today. We have the full revelation of God in Scripture, Old Testament and New You can buy it in whatever translation you want. You can pick up as many of them as you want and never get in trouble for it. We have more accurate biblical teaching available to us with the simple click of a cursor than any other time in the history of the church. And tomorrow, after all these pastors' sermons are uploaded to the website, we'll have more than we've ever had before again. Right at your fingertips. We have local churches that cater to literally every individual's wants or desires. We have a history as a nation of living in a place where Judeo-Christian values have more or less formed the backbone of who we are as a country. You may have generations of faithfulness within your own family tree. None of that will save you. If you're here this morning and you think that living in the Bible Belt or growing up in a Christian family or being able to quote some scripture or listening to some podcasts is going to save you, you're wrong. In the same way, That Paul looks at the Jewish people and says, all those privileges aren't ultimately going to save you. God will look at us in the moment of judgment and he will say, you had all those privileges, but they can't save you. You just trampled over the top of them. And you might protest or object, but your privileged position today will no more save you than the privileged position of the Jews was going to save them. We cannot allow privileged position to substitute for saving faith. Then let's go one more step. We can't allow our pious practices to substitute for saving faith either. I want to give two examples of this, and I I could give a number of them. The one that's maybe the strongest correlation between what Paul has to say about circumcision and where we are now is baptism. Baptism is not what saves you. 
Baptism is intended to be something that comes alongside an inward transformation. Circumcision was supposed to be an outward act that came alongside an inward transformation. That it was supposed to signify admission into a covenant relationship with the Lord, not grant admission into relationship with the Lord. Baptism is the same way. Baptism is something that signifies that we've stepped into relationship with the Lord. If you, I want to say this gently, but I also want to be genuine about it. If you were baptized at a point in your life as a child or even later in life, and that baptism happened separate from a commitment in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of your life, that he died for your sins and he's the only means by which you are saved, that baptism isn't going to save you in the moment of judgment. You will stand there and the word math will not be in your favor. That outward practice minus inward transformation has done nothing for you. Baptism is a sign. It's a symbol. It's something that we do in response to saving faith. Let me give another one. Church attendance. We live in an area of the world where church attendance is pretty routine. I operate under the assumption every Sunday morning that a decent number of the people who walk through the doors are here because they feel like they're supposed to be here. If that's you, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I do want to talk directly to you. I'm really, really glad that you're here today and every Sunday. But being here won't make one iota of difference when you stand before the Lord. That's because being here is not a substitute for saving faith. Attending church in today's modern world can be every bit as profitless of an endeavor if if it issues forth from a bankrupt heart. Sitting in a pew or a chair cannot replace having a heart transformed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've got your Bible open still, look back at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. Let me read this a different way. Because a person is not a Christian who is one outwardly. And true saving faith is not something visible in the flesh. But a person is a Christian who is one inwardly. And saving faith is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. And that is good news. Because if it were up to you to do all the right religious practices and to have been born in the exact right place, and if it were up to you to follow the law perfectly, all of us, Paul is saying, would stand before the Lord and just be utterly guilty. Because we can't possibly do it. And so are you trying to replace a transformed heart with pious religious activity? Or are you relying on your family or where you grew up Or the fact that you walked into church most Sundays to be the thing that saves you before the Lord. 
If so, you will find that on the day of judgment, your guilt will be exposed in the same way as that of a Jewish reader who read this section of Romans chapter 2 and 3. You don't have to be born into certain circumstances to have a relationship with the Lord. You don't have to earn it by doing the right religious stuff. It comes through the grace of God, and we step into it by faith in Jesus Christ. We get a new heart. Our hardened, unrepentant, rock-like heart is removed, and we're given one that is soft and humble. St. Augustine said it this way, The circumcision of the heart is, according to Paul, the cleansed will of a person. This is brought about not by the letter which demands and threatens, but by the Spirit who heals and helps. When we step into the grace of God through faith in Jesus, we get that helping, healing Spirit who takes our sin-stained state and begins to not just reveal our brokenness in greater measure, but also empowers us to step through it and seals us for eternity, guaranteeing our innocence through Christ at the moment of judgment. Despite any protest, privileged position, and pious practice will not save any person. But faith in Jesus could save every person. That's the good news of the gospel. We're going to close our time in worship this morning. Um, So if you will pray with me, and then we'll stand and sing together. God.